Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very warm welcome. My name is Philip Kennedy. I direct the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute public programs. And it's a great pleasure this evening to, to welcome a colleague, Professor Nizar Habash, to lecture on language technologies for Arabic and its dialects. And I just wanted to stress the point, which many of you here will know because you're part of the conference, that this lecture is associated with a conference on Arabic dialect technologies for which Nizar has concocted the wonderful acronym Wardat, which means a rose in, for those of you who don't know Arabic, rosy workshop. Just an introduction to Nizar Habash. He's an associate professor of computer science at New York University Abu Dhabi, which is here. He specializes in natural language processing and computational linguistics. Nizar received two undergraduate degrees, one in computer engineering and one in linguistics and languages. He was in computer science with a focus on machine translation from the University of Maryland College Park. Before joining NYU Abu Dhabi, he was a research scientist at Columbia University's Center for Computational Learning Systems. His research includes extensive work on machine translation, morphological analysis, and computational modeling of Arabic and its dialects. Nizar has been a principal investigator or co-investigator on over 200 grants. 20 grants. Because <laughs> 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 I was so shocked by the next figure. <laughs> and he has over 150 publications, right? That is impressive. Including a book entitled Introduction to Arabic Natural Language Processing. He's also the director of the Computational Approaches to Modeling Language Lab, a.k.a. CAMEL, in the NYU Abu Dhabi. So camel evokes an animal, but it also evokes camel, which means person. Welcome to the stage. Please welcome Nizar Hamash. <laughs> 200 grands, wow. <laughs> Never. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, that would cool. Inshallah, I wouldn't complain. Thank you, Villa, very much. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. I want to say a couple of words in Arabic for those who understand Arabic first, because I felt a bit bad about... This is the title of the talk in Arabic. stress. <laughs> السبب الرئيسي هو انه في كثير من الحاضرين ما بيحكوا اللغه العربيه، في السابق لما استخدمنا ترجمه فوريا كانت شوي انه فيها مشاكل خصوصا انه المفردات اللي بستخدمها مرات بتكون صعبه للمترجمين. رح اقبل اسئله بالاخير بالعربي وبالانجليزي وحاجاوب بالعربي وبالانجليزي اذا احتاج اوكي شكرا. Thank you. We can start. So as you saw, the topic is Arabic and Arabic dialect technologies. This is the roadmap that I have. Um, we're going to start by talking about what, what language technologies are, because I don't assume that the audience, all of them know what this term means necessarily, even though you've probably experienced it. And then I'm going to talk about Arabic, perhaps from a very different perspective. Many of you who either know Arabic or have actually worked with Arabic as educators or as second language learners will have perhaps a very different 
way of looking at it from uh, the way I would do a presenter today. And then I'll talk about the state of art, the state of the art in work on Arabic technologies, and then uh, do some summary and, and future work. So we start with language technologies. So I'm pretty sure all of you have experienced language technologies. If you did any search in Google, Google Translate, you use Siri, autocorrect, everybody, right? On social media, there's so much uh, language technology efforts are going on to check sentiment. Every time you say you're happy or sad or you're angry, that's actually information you're giving to Facebook that is used in building models in Facebook to predict what will make you happy in the future. So it will send you more or what will make you angry in the future. I'm not saying Facebook is doing this actively, but it could be used that way. You may have found documents in Google Books that were actually OCR'd, so it's optical character recognition, and then used. Uh, there's many other forms of language technologies. The last two are more about dialogue systems and chatbots, which are going to be probably more and more present in our near future. We're seeing a lot of work in major companies on this in English, and we hope in other languages too. So language technologies is this kind of general term, you know, the technical term that Philip used when he referred to, it's from my bio, is natural language processing. So this is the processing of natural languages, also called computational linguistics. And it's a very interdisciplinary field. As you saw, my background was in linguistics and also in computer engineering and computer science. And there are many people who come to this area from many different uh, backgrounds, people who study psychology and computer science, for example, who come to it. So there's a lot of, it's a really interesting kind of location that's in the center of many, many different fields of inquiry. And language technology for the historical record is one of the earliest problems that computer science worked on was machine translation and cryptography. Uh, if you've seen the uh, imitation game, you know, uh, trying to crack the enemy codes, uh, that's basically one of the early forms of language technologies, we could say. Now, I mentioned language technologies, I talk about applications like the one that I mentioned before, like information retrieval, character recognition, speech recognition, speech synthesis. And these are applications that have an interface with a human directly. So a human would find, okay, you know, I'm speaking to the machine, the machine tells me what I spoke and translates it to another language, for example. But you also, in our field, talk about things called the enabling technologies, which are kind of the back-end you know, part of the technology that is actually quite important. You can get a PhD just working on one of these components that no one else will immediately experience, but it's part of a process. So an example here is, for example, take this word in Arabic, which is a single word, meaning, and they will write it. It's actually one word in Arabic. When you translate, you can imagine translating from this input to that output. Internally, we could do things like transforming this word into these smaller units that actually align better. You know, a piece that says it's and, another piece that says will, another piece that says right. And that helps the machine in doing this transformation. Again, some people do just their doctorates on one of these tasks, and, and it's incredible to get like a 1% improvement in some of the tasks that we work on. Now, people working in language technologies fall in different paradigms of how they approach it, approaches. One of them is what's called rule-based approaches, where linguists sit down, write rules that help the machine process the text. Other kind of approaches are called machine learning approaches, where the idea is that you let the machine figure out how to actually do the task, right? That sounds very sci-fi, and it kind of is a little bit. So in these ideas, what you're doing is you're giving the machine the information and let the machine figure out the rule, as opposed to telling the machine how to actually do the work itself. 
In the early days of computer science and natural language processing, it was more heavily rule-based because our computational power was actually weaker, more limited. Now that we have more power, computationally, we're finding machine learning is, is a lot more uh, advantageous. And it's actually the dominant pattern in the field is to go through machine learning approaches. So how do we help machines learn, to use this terminology of machines learning? Well, data, data, and more data, and command data, you just need a lot of data. And the kind of data that we talk about here is what's called annotated data. So annotated data are things that give you examples, if you may, of this kind of thing gets this kind of thing, this input, this output. For example, if you're doing a machine translation system, many of you, I'm sure, use Google Translate, the system in Google Translate was based, was built on millions of words of text that was in language A mapped with language B. And these pairs of sentences, uh, some of them are you know, things that people have translated in the past as part of translating news. They could be United Nations documents, for example, that are in multiple languages. The machine then learns how to go from the input to the output. Right Now, this parallelism is really central whenever we talk about annotation and annotated resources. So you take a task like uh, figuring out the sentiment or the emotion. Is this text positive or is it negative? Well, you start by creating a large collection of data that says, here's a tweet. Is it positive? Is it negative? Here's another tweet, positive or negative? And you collect thousands, millions of these, and you learn, you let the machine learn from them. Now, the challenge with this kind of thing is, there are many challenges. One of them is we need a lot of data uh, to be able to do this well. So if you have a small amount of annotated data or parallel data, you're not going to get a lot. You're not going to be able to abstract enough or learn enough of the patterns. So more is better for us. So that's whenever we talk about we need more data, we're talking about more of this annotation. Also, these systems tend to be very what's called domain and genre sensitive, meaning if you build a system that's very good for translating news and you go and you use it to translate uh, literature or poetry, it's not going to do well. That seems reasonable, right? Because the machine does not know about the kind of language and constructions that would appear in this genre because it was trained on a different genre. And then the quality of the annotation. You know, if you have good quality where, let's say, you're assigning sentiment with a high degree of agreement between humans, we probably would think this is probably good data that we can learn from. But if the humans sometimes do not agree with each other, why would we expect a machine to do better than them? So this quality is really important. When I wrote this slide, I thought, this is kind of interesting. This is just like the kind of advice you give parents to children. Say, you need to spend more time with your kids. You need to spend more quality time with your kids. You need to talk to them about lots of different things so they grow up to be well-rounded individuals. So it's kind of machine learning and human learning are kind of similar in some way. I'm comparing a little baby to a machine Except this machine here, the baby one, is uh, predisposed for language learning. It, has, it is truly a natural language processor. You know, it learns language on its own, and it, it has a much higher, faster rate of actually learning language. A lot of people in cognitive science talk more about this. But the analogy, I think, is quite fair. This other machine is not so. And that's why we need the other component. Beside the data, we need algorithms. This is programming code that will take this data and then we'll be able to learn from it. So this is kind of like the engine which we have naturally built in us as little babies, but we don't have with a machine. And research that goes in language technology goes in both of these areas. How do you develop good algorithms? And also how do you develop data that can be used in a successful way with these algorithms to, to do a particular task? So hopefully, this is basically language technologies in a shell. This is, I spend a whole semester teaching this in a course called Natural Language Processing. So far, I haven't talked about Arabic at all. So I'm going to start 
by talking about it, what I'm calling it Arabic from a technical perspective. I'm going to start by talking about writing system aspects, word structure aspects, and then dialects. I'm not going to talk about syntax and semantics because it's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there, but it's outside of the scope possibly time-wise for us. So we start with Arabic um, uh, writing system. This is the Arabic script. I don't know if everybody's familiar with the script and its kind of structure. It's technically what's called an abjad, which means that it's a consonantal writing system where the vowels are dropped or written as diacritical marks. So Arabic writes primarily in terms of consonants and markers for log vowels and generally does not actually specify the vowels <laughs> explicitly in the writing, but you can add them if you need to. Letters also have multiple shapes, depending on the beginning, the middle, at the end of the word. And Arabic, of course, the script is used not just for the Arabic language, but for many, many other languages. As you can see here, this is, this is the kind of set that we use in basic Arabic. The set of characters that are used in extended Arabic is about two and a half times the set that's used in basic Arabic. A lot of people in the Arab world don't, don't know this. So how do we map these sets of symbols to something that a machine can understand? Well, that's when we have what's called a Unicode. A Unicode is an encoding. It's a type of mapping that says a particular character, like the letter B or the letter M, has internally to be mapped into a sequence of zeros and ones because that's all the machine can actually understand. So a word like al-hub, for example, gets mapped into 0001010. I'm just not going to do that all night. But that's actually the exact encoding of the word al-hub uh, when you look at it in terms of its, its code. So the machine just... The I, I, reason I put this is because the machine sees this in a very different way than we see it and we experience it, right? Now, Arabic input and output uh, generally is what's called letter-based. So you may have uh, all these different shaping that's happening. You know, the L at the beginning is different from the middle, different from the end. But conceptually, it's represented in the encoding as a single um, code. And then when you display it on the screen, the, there's a separate algorithm that decides okay, we're going to shape it correctly. We're going to put the L at the beginning of the word. We'll have a different shape from the L at the end of the word. What happens when you have a mismatch or a lack of support in the system that you're using is that you get this garbage here on the side. Many of you, I'm sure, have experienced this. You know, when you use a computer that's not yours, that doesn't have support for Arabic, or you open a document that perhaps is a bit old, doesn't have the same right of support, and you get very weird uh, characters. It still may be Arabic, it's just you're not reading it using the right translation code for displaying it. Now, this is just to give you a sense of how it is kind of very low level from the machine. I'm going to jump back up and talk about how we actually represent within the script itself, conceptually, what kind of information we provide. So I mentioned earlier that Arabic is primarily consonantal with diacritics. Diacritics, for those who don't know, are these little the little marks that go on top of the letters, generally a couple of them at the bottom. And as I said earlier, they indicate whether there's a vowel or sometimes a doubling. And what's really interesting as a number is this number here. 1.5% of all words in Arabic in news actually have at least one diacritic. They're not fully diacritized, at least like some diacritic. And I think about a third of these are on the wrong letter, supposedly. So we just basically, Arabs, you think, well, how can they read? Well, what happens is you basically depend on the context and you figure out from the context. But there's a very high degree of ambiguity that's embedded in this writing system. Here is an example of the text completely undiacritized at the top versus completely diacritized at the bottom. 
Arabic speakers would tell you that the, they prefer the one at the top more than the one at the bottom. Uh, it's just it's just too much information going on. Uh, only kids in the Arab world get exposed to the full diacritization and only at the beginning to get them started. And then later, it's that 1.5% of the time when a word really has to be specified in a particular way. Otherwise, the meaning would be lost. So, so this brings us to one of the really big problems in processing Arabic with the machine, which is orthographic ambiguity. You spell something in one way, you can read it in many, many different ways. I want to just kind of say, well, how ambiguous is this? Sometimes in some books teaching Arabic to non-Arabic speakers or talking about Arabic and sometimes other Sabic languages, they would use an example like this one. So I'm using here Roman characters to kind of simulate. I drop all the vowels and say, here is what, if you were reading Arabic, but ignore the letters, here is kind of the experience. You would see the sequence of characters, and it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on. This actually says this is what an Arabic text look like, looks like with, with no vowels. But this is not exactly true, I mean, as an analogy, partly because Arabic has long and short vowels, and the long vowels are always written explicitly with, an, with a letter, like an alif or a waw or a yeah. So those are not really dropped. So it's not true that Arabic does not specify its vowels, even in the, in the common way that we write without diacritics. All initial vowels are marked with an extra elif character, and many of the final vowels are also indicated. So, you know, you have a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end, somewhere in the middle. And if I do kind of, a, a kind of an analogy, uh, I think a proper analogy would look more like the one above, where I, I decided, you know, in this Arabic-style spelling of English, I'm going to put the stressed vowels will be written and the unstressed vowel will be dropped simulate short versus long, let's say. And, and this is quite readable, actually, for, for English uh, speakers. And may even many of, of them have written it in text messages or seen it on tweets where they have to stick to 140 characters. I usually joke when I give this presentation that, you know, Arabs are so ahead technologically from the rest of the world, they've been preparing to tweet for 1,400 years, right? So now, you know, welcome to the club of tweets, you know? Now, from a computer point of view, it's a little bit different. You know, the machine looks at a word, needs to figure out what's going on in the context. When you look at its level of complexity, you find numbers like this. Seven diacritizations are possible for every word. You can take a word and have seven different possible ways, 6.8 different ways of diacritizing it, about 12 different possible analyses. Some of them have the same diacritization, and about 2.7 core meanings, right? So you take a word like the kaftaba, could be kataba as he wrote or kutub as books, right? And kutub as it was written, right? So these are many different forms from the same exact word. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when I get to word structure too. Now, I've talked about the complexity of the writing system in the best scenario that it's actually written without spelling errors. But guess what? Arabic, like many other languages, has a lot of spelling errors that go into uh, how when people perform Arabic as opposed to what their intention is and how they think of Arabic. So I was a lead on a project called the Qatar Arabic Language Bank, and this was funded by the Qatar Foundation. This is an example from that uh, project where the top is a post with all kinds of errors in it, and the bottom part is the corrected version. We corrected two million words. We hired a small team of people who worked on this for about two years and built an interface for them. And this allowed us to uh, get statistics on the kind of errors that people make when they write an edited text, where their intention is to write in standard Arabic, but, or, or something more formal, let's say, but then it's, it's not edited. There's no second round of editing. And the goal was to develop this as an annotated text, 
explained that term earlier. So you can develop systems that would know how to do automatic spelling correction. You show an example, million, two million in this case, examples of words that are misspelled and their correct spelling. But the interesting part was about 30% error rate. So one of every three words had a bug in it. A big majority of these was the Hemzas, and the Arabs know about the Hemzas. We're going to come back to the Hemzas later. So now talking about word structure as opposed to um, writing system. So here we talk, use the term morphology and word structure interchangeably. I know the term could mean different things in different fields, but when we talk about morphology here, we mean the structure of a word, how it's formed, how it's put together. And Arabic is what's called morphologically rich. So morphologically challenged, it has a lot of different forms associated with a basic idea or concept. As an example, Arabic verbs have about 5,400 forms. I'll show you what these forms look like. We start with two genders, two, uh, three numbers, three persons, three aspects, possibility of having a tense particle like se or not having that particle. That's two possibilities. Three moods, two voice, active or passive. You can have a pronoun at the end of the word that is actually written attached to it. And you can also have a conjunction like and attached to the whole structure of the word. So if I take a word like qal, you would have in this set of 5,000 different forms, things like qala, qalat, qala, qalu, qulta, qulti, qultima, qultum, and we get to wasanakuluha as an example. And wasanakuluha, you can think of it as basically having these multiple components in them, right? So when we say morphologically complex, we're talking about this aspect, that there's lots and lots of forms. Morphological complexity is different from uh, the orthographic ambiguity. There's many languages, there are many languages that are morphologically <coughs> complex. Finnish is morphologically complex, Czech is morphologically complex, but they're not as ambiguous as Arabic is, right? So that's because of the dropping of the diacritics. And that's why the problem in working on teaching a computer how to handle Arabic is that it has to be able to handle both of these aspects at the same time. Compared to English, just as a reference point, English is not morphologically rich by far. The verb paradigm has six forms, compared to 5,400 forms that you find in text, six. Uh, the complete tag set, so the tag set is basically the list of the different uh, possible types of words, classes, like saying noun, verb, adjective, adverb. In English, you can describe everything with about 48. Uh, in Arabic, you need 22,400. And that would include things like saying, oh, you know, this is a word that has a conjunction, it has a future particle, or it has a definite article and a noun, and the noun is nominative, and it has a, a possessive pronoun following it, for example. And these numbers are only for standard Arabic. Uh, dialectal can be worse in certain cases, actually, surprisingly. Now, when we talk about morphological ambiguity, I mentioned a couple of these numbers <laughs> earlier of the 12 different possible analyses. Just give you a couple of examples of where these things are coming from. Some of them are coming from the spelling ambiguity, the orthographic ambiguity, and some of it is coming from the morphology. So take this word, right? It has a large number of possible spellings, actually, uh, uh, analyses. I'm going to pick, I picked two here just to highlight. So somebody writing this word could actually mean وَبَدَلْتُهَا, as in, and, and I exchanged with her. Or it could mean which means, and with her pieces of evidence. There's no connection you know, for someone. And from the machine point of view, it's just like, what is this, right? And the machine is trying to learn, oh, this word maps to evidence here and here, but now exchange, I'm confused, what's going on, 
right? And it's, of course, you know, I did change the Hemza spelling, but that's actually realistic because, as I said, there's a lot of errors that come in the input. Other types, this is, this is orthographic. Uh, ambiguity is partly responsible together with the complexity it creates this variety. But if you look at another aspect, is what's called derivational ambiguity and homonymy, and this is not unique to Arabic. Lots of languages have this, but a couple of examples. So one word is al-ayn, which you know, is the eye, a spring of water, the city called al-ayn in, in the United Arab Emirates, a notable, like ayn min ayan al-Madina, a notable in town. So you don't really know. Again, the context hopefully will disambiguate, but we're talking about the machine doing this disambiguation. The second example is my favorite example of ambiguity of Arabic. It's the word al-muhtal. Al-muhtal means both occupier and occupied. Sort of like the opposites of each other. And in fact, you know, you find things like al-adu al-muhtal, the occupying enemy, al-watan al-muhtal, the occupied homeland. And when you have a word like a dual al-muhtal, and I searched in Google for these, you get both meanings, the occupying countries and the occupied countries, right? And it's actually interesting, if you go and search for Israel al-Muhtalla and Palestine al-Muhtalla, you'll get really interesting context where both actually, well, not the Palestine in the occupier sense. Although maybe for some, you know, I was kind of, I'm Palestinian myself, and I joke, oh, maybe at the end we were the occupiers, and I just didn't know, you know? Anyway, talking about, I, I already hinted to this word, disambiguation, so the idea here is we want to distinguish when we, when we teach the machine between two ideas. One of them that I've been talking a lot about, which is this degree of ambiguity and complexity, and there's so many different forms. Okay, but how do I resolve them? So the first is what's called analysis, where you get many different possibilities for a particular word. You want your system to be able to be given this word. It's a three-letter word in Arabic, B-Y-N, that has lots of different readings, that vary from being a past tense, meaning he demonstrated, or they, women, demonstrated, to an adjective, like bayin, to even a phrase of bien, as in in yen, or with yen. You would find uh, these kind of constructions possibly. But in this context, let's say I just made up this context for it, I actually meant it as Ben Affleck. Uh, would he be a good Batman? And, you know, Bane, uh, the most common reading for it in our corpora is the preposition, meaning between or among. But you could find context like this. And then effectively you have to resolve this. So this is what we mean with the problem of disambiguation. Can we get a machine to disambiguate to figure out in context what's going on? And I will show you a demo later of a tool that we developed that does this kind of disambiguation. Now, so far I've actually been using standard Arabic examples I've been talking primarily about standard Arabic, but everything I said applies pretty much to all of the dialects. The same kind of problems that we're talking about are the same in the standard Arabic and in the dialect. And now I'm going to shift a little bit to talking about Arabic dialects. A bit of introduction maybe may be boring for some people, I'm not sure. Arabic has about 360 million speakers. I found references that say over 400. I just, some say 300. I put 360. I don't, I did not count them. <laughs> and there are many different forms of Arabic that are actually used. So people talk about classical Arabic, uh, which is the language of the Quran and the Hadith and other earlier texts. You talk about standard Arabic, modern standard Arabic. I would say typically this is the language of the news today, and it's primarily the written standard across the Arab world. And then there's dialectal Arabic, which is primarily the spoken variety of Arabic that is, of course, spoken all over the, the Arab world. I don't think of these things as three different languages or three different levels or, I mean, obviously they're historically connected with each other, but today an Arab Muslim 
man or woman, a person, would be praying in the classical Arabic, would read the news in the standard Arabic, and would talk to their children in the dialectal Arabic, right? So you actually use all three of them all the time. It's part of one complex system. They're quite different internally in terms of their lexical choices and their morphological structure, but Arab speakers learn to basically deal with all of them together. It's just part of what makes you an educated, fluent Arab is that you can know how to handle all of these and know the right time to use which variety of them. <laughs> and, and this particular phenomenon of being able to jump between these different levels is what's called diaglossia. In Arabic, they call it istiwajiya lughawiya. So you have this form of having these two different forms, potentially quite different from each other, but they serve specific roles in how communication happens in Arabic. We look at a map of the Arab world, and this is a map based on the different regions of dialects as opposed to the political boundaries. And there's a big disconnect between these two maps. Don't read too much into the details of the map, just kind of impressionistic of the kind of variety that we would find. Now, across this great land, from the ocean to the Gulf as they go, the official language is standard Arabic, but it's nobody's native language in the sense that nobody grows at home. The kids don't learn it first, they go to school and they start learning it. And that's how part of their uh, education to become this full adult who's able to function in those three varieties, as I said earlier. And the dialects typically are talked about in terms of the regions. It's a kind of one course level of talking about them. You can go in many different level of sub-dialect uh, splitting. We talk about Egyptian typically, Levantine. Levantine means Lebanese, Palestinian, Jordanian, you know, that area, Shami uh, for Arabic speakers. Gulf and then North African dialects can be grouped together, sometimes should be split. And of course, there's many, many different sub-dialects that can be talked about in each one of these regions. So I'm going to put a slide on this question that many people struggle with in the Arab world of, is it a dialect or is it a language? And I thought, well, let's see. So there's an argument from power. I would call it the arguments from power about what makes a dialect a dialect or a language. I know this is a big political ideological discussion that happens in the Arab world. (laughs) And in this, you know, I would use uh, this this expression that, you know, a language is a dialect with an army. If you decide that you're going to call yourself a language, what you speak, and you're going to, you build a wall around you and you tell everybody, you know, oh, this is like a Trump reference. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) It took, what, like uh, 30 minutes? In. <laughs> so you, you go and you declare yourself as, this is my language is Lebanese or, you know, Beiruti Lebanese is my language. Okay, it is. And you defend it, right? That's, that's all, I'm not saying that's what should happen. I'm just saying that this is the kind of space of argumentation that people have actually talked about. And usually the power question comes from religion or from ideologies like nationalism, regionalism, etc., Now, there's the arguments from linguistic difference. So this would say, well, are they mutually intelligible? Can we measure the distance between these two different varieties and make that as a decision for measuring whether they are a dialect or a language? But but again, you still have to decide who gets the label language, which is the power part. Uh, These are quite hard, actually. And many times people fall into kind of um, pitfalls in this discussion. Uh, I call them the eager communicator problem and the, the, and, and the solution is the eavesdrop test. The eager communicator problem is that when Arabs come together to talk, they're eager to communicate. So you will actually adjust their language for the benefit of the other person to try to communicate, which means that they don't actually speak their own dialect, in fact. The eavesdrop test is a test where I'm basically saying, can you, if you claim that uh, as a Moroccan, you can understand Levantine Arabic, can you listen on a conversation in Levantine and tell me what they said? And I think many people usually fail in some of these tests because, again, 
when people are talking in the inner circles with each other, they speak differently when they talk across different uh, boundaries. Now, and this is important also from the point of designing a machine that needs to be able to work with people coming from many different dialects, are you right? So that brings me to the third point of looking at this, which is often not discussed outside of technological circles, which is the argument from technology. From my point of view, the question of dialect or language is effectively irrelevant, right? You can call it that, you can call it that, it doesn't really matter too much. At the end of the day, you want an input and an output that actually makes sense, that serves the customer, the person, right? I shouldn't expect as a human to speak in a different way just so that the machine would understand me. That sounds kind of backwards, actually. The machine is there to serve me, not me serve an ideology the machine is built on. So from that point of view, I would actually ask the question differently. Do we understand how Arabs actually function within a diagnostic system? How do they navigate these different levels and use that knowledge and that understanding to get the machine to be able to model it, right? I would ask the question of how do Arabs actually communicate in terms of their behavior and in terms of their expectations? Because the machine will be the other communicator. I want to make the machine the most eager Arab communicator ever. It understands everything you say in any dialects, and maybe it can talk to you in your dialect if you want, or if you want to choose standard Arabic as the language it comes back in, that should be an option, right? So I'm, I'm taking whatever these phenomena are, instead of using them as arguments, I would say, well, let's model how we usually naturally discuss. I'm not saying, of course, that this kind of precludes any statements about power. I'm quite aware of technology, knowledge, power, of course, right? Uh, but at least from a technological point of view, as a technologist, I build tools, and then people can do whatever they want with them, right? So that's kind of my approach to it. Now, for those who don't know about the differences in dialects, perhaps you say, you know, you're talking about them being different, but you haven't shown me a single thing of how they're different. The Arabic speakers probably already can imagine I'll give you some examples. So things like, for example, phonological variants. MSA is modern standard Arabic. I'll take one example. This uh, symbol here is the qaf. It's pronounced as qa. And it's qaf. But you would find about six different pronunciations in different dialects. So if I take a word like tariq in standard Arabic, you would hear it as tariq, tariq, tarig, tarij, and tariq. This is Sudanese pronunciation. It's a bit different from the Qaw pronunciation. And these are quite different. So a machine as, as a speech recognition system, we would expect it to be able to handle all of this variety. Right? Spelling inconsistency. So I use the word inconsistency as opposed to spelling error because I don't want to be judgmental. In the case of standard Arabic, there is a standard way to spell the words. We can go to all these books on imla that tell us exactly how we're supposed to spell our hamzas. And if you and I know there's a couple of different variants in different majama lugha, uh, different academies. But but in general, we know the right way of spelling and a wrong way of spelling. But when you go to the dialect, what is a right way and what's a wrong way? There is no academy of Arabic dialects, Does it exist? They have not decided. I'll give you an example. This Egyptian word, maybe ulhash means he does not say it. It's a single word for this whole sentence. This is actually not every, way, every possible way you can spell this word. This is just some of them. And you can see for the Arabic speakers, in some cases, we're spelling uh, based on how it sounds. In some cases, we're spelling based on its historical relation to standard Arabic. So it's an etymological spelling as opposed to phonological spelling. Is the vowel that gets shortened in bu'ul, when you say bu'ulha, should I write it long, invoking that it was long, but it was shortened, or should I write it short because it sounds short, right? So you end up with lots of these. And then I added here on the side, 
another very common modern phenomena called Arabizi. Arabizi is basically Arabic written in Roman script, and it's actually the baby of technological failure, actually. <laughs> the fact that, you know, some of the early machinery where people would type in, wanted to type in Arabic and they couldn't, had only a Roman keyboard, so what do they do to communicate? Eager communicator uses the, Arab, the Roman script, and you invent ways of actually mapping them. Uh, there's a generally agreed-upon set of symbols of mapping, but it's not a standard by, by, by any measure. And as I said, you know, if there is no standard, we cannot really call it misspelled. It's just a variety that exists out there. We try, I mention later, a particular idea that we've developed in computational settings to try to kind of make some sense out of this. Other varieties, uh, lexical variations. Arabic dialect is one of the other aspects where they quite vary a lot. So I show here a table showing a particular English concept idea and how it's uh, said in many different uh, dialects. So you get things, for example, for the word a table, you know, tawila, mida, tarabeza, tawile, mez. These are all the words for table. Some of them, you know, look like the standard Arabic. Some come from Persian. Tarabeza comes from Greek, interestingly enough, into Egyptian Arabic. There are other cases where, for example, this here, the word will in English, as in the future marker, appears as a different kind of prefix, it's different dialects. So it's, let's say, sayaktubu in, in standard Arabic, but it's raiktub in Moroccan and Hayuktub in, in Levantine. Interestingly, it's a particle that's still attached in the same position, right? Other examples of lexical variations, the one I showed you earlier, are all the words that actually, for the same concept, you have many different words. Here is the same word, but referring to many different concepts. So a word like barad, the first one, it means kettle, where you boil water for tea. In, in Egyptian versus fridge, right? So if I want to buy a barad, I don't know what I'm getting, except I know who I'm talking, who I'm asking to buy the barad for me. Uh, mara is one of those also really problematic words as a Levantine man. For us, it means woman. It's just flat. There's nothing negative or positive, just woman, female, person, adult. It's a really bad word in Egyptian. You don't want to use it. So, but, and so this is kind of problematic. I mean, this is problematic for humans, you know, let, let alone getting the machine to figure out how to translate correctly. If my system is trained on Egyptian Arabic and I actually use it to translate Levantine, I'll get in trouble right, doing something like this. There's also other things like morphological change and variations. And some of these I'll, I'll break into two parts, you know, the, the part where the complexity gets reduced. This is the most commonly people aware of this much more. So case ending, uh, standard Arabic has many different endings, like kitabu, kitaba, kitabi, that tells you, are you, are you the doer of the thing? Are you the object of the verb, uh, etc. And most of these have basically disappeared in most dialects uh, for that particular role. Uh, other forms like uh, feminine plural and masculine plural also tend to collapse uh, and similar. So this is a reduction. This will make the system a lot kind of more efficient perhaps in communication, but will also force the syntax to be more restricted. You cannot just move things around as much as we can do in standard Arabic. But other things become more complex. So for instance, if you take this sequence, I'm actually going to go to the slide directly. At the top, you see a particular morphological structure of what goes into a word in standard Arabic. So you may have a conjunction, a tense marker, the verb, a subject piece, and an object. Don't read too much in the exactness of this. It's just supposed to be impressionistic about what kind of information goes there. When you go to Egyptian, in addition to the subject and the object, you can have an indirect object. And you can also do a negation that actually surrounds the word from both ends, kind of attacks it to negate it. So you have, for example, a word like, 
which is a single word meaning, and you did not write it for him. It's Egyptian, just one single word. Uh, it's a really long <laughs> sentence, in fact. In, Ara in standard Arabic, to translate this, it has to become three words, right? So in terms of the complexity, the amount of information that you're putting in a word, uh, Egyptian wins over standard Arabic in this case and how much more information it's putting, right? So this is something when we're dealing with actual text, when we deal with tweets and posts, we find stuff like this all the time. And we want to be able to actually analyze it and understand it. But you could say, again, why work on Arabic dialects? I've probably given the answer. You, know, you could say, you know, dialects are mostly spoken, so who cares? There's actually a lot of, I mean, besides the fact that we needed computers to interact with people when they speak so they can understand them, that's actually the dialect as the primary form of communication. It's not just about translating documents. We can use technology for other things like, you know, ordering our robot to do something or doing speech even to speech translation. Uh, but there's also a lot more data that's being generated in Arabic uh, dialects today that's actually written. If you look at the Arabic content online, there's a huge amounts of dialectal data. Uh, people are just becoming more and more active. In fact, one of the Arabic dialects, Egyptian, have made a major step of moving in claiming its own independence, if you may, or what's called a language by development phenomenon, we have now something called uh, Wikipedia Masri, right? So Wikipedia, there's a Arabi Wikipedia and there's a Masri Wikipedia, right? So the moment you start creating a culture around the dialect slash language, you're actually enforcing this claim about independence in some way. And But either way, as I said, I'm interested in being able to handle it regardless of the label that we give to it. But the last point is also interesting is that if we, if we want to be able to use tools that we have already for standard Arabic and just apply them on the dialect, we fail uh, quite miserably. So Egyptian words in the data sets that we have, about 36%, about a third of all Egyptian words have no analysis that makes sense if we use a standard Arabic analyzer. So think of the machine that only learned about standard Arabic, you give it Egyptian words one third of the time, so I don't know what you're talking about. I just have no idea. It doesn't look like anything. So that's why we want to work on, on this. So now let me give you a sense of where we are in terms of state of the art of Arabic technology in general. I'm going to try to do this using a bunch of examples of, of current state of the art uh, publications on this, comparing English, Standard Arabic, and Egyptian Arabic, which has uh, some. I mean, it's, it's actually the most work on Arabic dialects has been on Egyptian Arabic in the technological area. So for things like identifying the part of speech, this is like, is this a noun, an adjective? Is it, uh, you know, from those 22,000 possibilities that we talked about earlier? For standard Arabic, if you look at that whole complexity, you get about 85% accuracy. So 15% of all the words, you get it wrong. English loses in 2.5%. It's like 97% accurate on English. Of course, I'm comparing apples and oranges, fairly. English is simpler than Arabic. So let's suppose we simplify some things and we just say, okay, why don't you just look at about 34 tags in Arabic that are the core, like noun, adjective. Don't tell me all of this stuff about endings and whatnot. <laughs> there we, we get to 96%. But, but that's, of course, by reducing the complexity of what is it that we're talking about. The dialects, uh, in the Egyptian is worse than standard Arabic by far. I mean... 75% uh, to 85, it's about 10 points lower than standard Arabic. Dependency syntax is another kind of way of, it's a different kind of technology where you look at the syntactic structure. Can you figure out if a word is the subject of the verb or another word is the object of the verb? That kind of relation. English best results are about 92%. It's really hard. Uh, Arabic is doing about 86%, you know, for the standard. And I'm not aware of any recent work on Egyptian Arabic to, re to report here. 
So there's a large gap, and this large gap, we'll talk about why it's really lack of resources and lack of work that's done on, on these languages. Another comparison of performance, I'm using examples from machine translation. So if you've used Google Translate uh, to translate Arabic, you're probably familiar with this. If you put something that is in standard Arabic, you get quite a decent output. So this, all of them say there is no electricity, what happened? Right? But then all the ones that are in the dialect produce this kind of nonsense. This is, I tested it. I use this slide a lot, and I test it before every presentation to make sure that Google has not improved it to actually make the slide irrelevant. As of two days, they have not done this. And I love like the kind of results. You know, you get BS here. Is that the word is best, actually. But my favorite is Leish uh, Haik, which is why, why this? It becomes, why the heck? I'm thinking, well, actually, that's not so bad, you know? Hake and heck, I never really connected them together. But, but the reason for this, actually, if you look back to my first set of slides at the beginning, data, 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 more data, 150 million words of parallel text for Arabic exist that people have reported on. Guess how much for the dialect? 1.5. That's 1% in size of what you have for, for, for standard Arabic. Of course, the results are not going to be as good. This slide, I show the sets of public resources that are available. I use two different reference uh, important associations, the Linguistic Data Consortium and the European Language Resources Association. We looked at all of the data sets that they have. This is data that researchers use. I have to say, this is normalized for the size. Some data may be small and some may be big. I just counted them. Actually, I have one of my assistants count them for me. And the green is the English, the orange, if you can see the colors here, is the standard Arabic. Uh, sorry, it's all of Arabic. And the red is the dialectal Arabic. And this is a cumulative count. So every year is, by definition, more because it's everything from the previous year plus what was new that year. And you'll find, interestingly, that in about the year 2000, we had about 1%. The resources in Arabic were about 1% of the size of the resources uh, in English. By 2016, it's about 22%. This is an incredible rise, actually. And a lot of it is not because of major things happening in the Arab world. It's because a lot of funding in the U.S. happened to support research on Arabic language technologies. So a lot of this stuff was actually funded in the United States. In the last few years, there's been work that's done in Saudi Arabia that's been added, which we really you know, commend them for actually putting this stuff up and making it available for other researchers. In terms of publications, as opposed to data, this is actual a representation of the kind of work that people do and they publish on uh, the science itself, the experiments uh, that they do. Uh, the comparison is more scary. So the green is the English and the orange is the Arabic. It's about 6% of the size of the English publications if you go from the year 2000 to the year 2016, right? If I, I normalize the English so that I kind of put it on a different scale and you just see the all of Arabic versus dialectal, and, and here you also still see a pattern where there's much more work on the standard than there is on the dialect. Interestingly, in the year 2000, I believe there was about one-fifth of the papers were on dialects among the papers on Arabic. And as of 2016, the total is about 50% of the papers uh, are on dialect. So there's a lot more interest in doing more dialectal word, uh, work uh, <coughs> happening now. Now, you could say English, you're comparing to English. English is the language of empire. It's the language of the world today. You know, Of course, you know, you're going to have more in English. So we looked at other things like French, um, Chinese, German, Spanish. And there, if you pick, let's say, and pick on German, German has a third of the number of people who are native speakers uh, compared to Arabic in terms of size, but they have twice as many <laughs> publications written on German and natural language processing. So the Arab world, Arab work on Arabic NLP really needs to also catch up at least to German. 
I'm not going to go through discussing a lot of the tools that are developed. There is, although I showed these relative numbers that look low, but there's still plenty of things that have been uh, happening. So there's lots of work that's been done on doing a morphological analysis, disambiguation, work that's done on sentiment, and many, many other things. I'm not going to go through the slide because it's very busy, but I'll try to give you uh, specific examples of, of things that we've worked on, some of which actually is happening at NYUAD and also funded by NYUAD, actually. So it's a bit of advertisement for the work that we're doing here. This is called CODA, or a conventional orthography for dialectal Arabic. This is kind of like saying we need a standard that all of us can agree on, or I should say a convention. Every standard is a convention, but not every convention is a standard. So it's a convention that all of the researchers can agree on. So when I ask a lexicographer to write entries in Sudanese, he or she will know how to write the entry following these rules that we have all agreed on, and I don't have to go and check on their work all the time. To give you a sense of what this looks like, uh, this is an example of a sentence in Egyptian which means... I didn't see my friends since the period before exams. And uh, at the bottom, you find many different ways, again, a subset of all the possible ways that someone would actually have written the sentence with different spaces added in some cases. Actually, this is kind of reverse vowel spelling where they spell a vowel long, even though it's actually short and was never long to start with. And the top is, is the CODA standard that we, are, uh, that we proposed. It looks like any of them. It's like one of them, but it has a consistency across all of its choices for the language and also consistency that we want to um, uh, enforce across the multiple dialectal resources we have. This doesn't mean that we're asking people to start writing this way. We're not. But it means that when we judge the correctness of our systems, we want to have a reference point that we can say, oh, here is what this was meant. Oh, you had a spelling variant from our standard. But we have to have a reference point. Otherwise, it's like continuous comparison of apples and oranges, and we never really can judge the quality of our work. Second is this tool called Metamira. It's a state-of-the-art tool for Arabic and Arabic dialect morphological analysis and disambiguation. This is work that I started and worked on with Mona Diab and Owen Rambo in Colombia many years ago when I was at Columbia University. And now it's a continuing collaboration between Columbia, George Washington University, and NYU Abu Dhabi. And, and this tool, I can show you actually a quick just image demo of what it does. So what you see, this was the speed of the display. This is actually it running right now on our servers. Uh, I gave it some text, and now all of this text has been analyzed. And I uh, can, I mean, this is for display purposes. In fact, uh, there's a lot more knowledge that's kind of hidden. And for technology purposes, we use those other forms. But to kind of explain to people what's, what is it that we're doing, is I'm going, you know, this says that the word is qal, which means said, it's a verb, perfective, masculine, indicative, singular, a third person, active voice. This is the word army. This is the word Syrian. You see the gloss at the bottom. And, and it actually figured out the separation between all of the different particles uh, surrounding the words. And interestingly, it also includes the full diacritization. You know, قَالَ جَيْسُ سُرِيُّ الْحُرُّ You know, so actually it worked in this case. Case ending is really hard, even for the machines. And so this is a good example. It actually worked. I, I, I just picked up the example from, from the page now. So this is this tool. If we give you an example of something in Egyptian Arabic. So this is uh, Sorry, my Egyptian is pretty bad. Pretty bad. Uh, and uh, we, we actually generate a diacritization of the Egyptian. Yeah, so, so it's in the words, this word says no analysis, hatindam is no analysis, mashuftahash is no analysis, the system just did not know what to do. 
if I switch it to Egyptian Arabic mode, I actually get the analysis, and I'll just put it in this form, where it tells me, oh, this is ma, shuft, ha, and sh, and it's a verb, and it has two negative particles, and it means look, which is the correct answer <laughs> in this case, right? So this is kind of an example of one, one component of the kind of technologies that we do. We do this, this is not an end in itself. This step is run, and then we use it as part of doing translation into English. And it definitely has improved consistently the performance on translation between Arabic and English to do this initial step. I'm going to mention this other resource, which we had started here. It's called the Gumar Corpus. So it's a corpus of 100 million words of Gulf Arabic. It's actually collections of what's called riwayat in net or internet novels, primarily written by women in the Arab world. It's, a very, it's an interesting kind of underground genre where women write prolifically and anonymously, and they use names that sound like Qalb uh, Dubai or, you know, like the heart of Dubai. <laughs> it would be names that are very poetic sounding, and they're all written in the dialect. And they seem to have evolved on their own a sort of a convention, actually, that doesn't vary a lot from the kind of stuff that we do. If we have time, I can show you a demo of actually looking through this it's publicly available now. You can go and search for terms and look at context where those words are being used. We got some funding from NYUED generously this year to actually do manual annotation for 200,000 words. And we plan to, using this work, to add Gulf Arabic in addition to Egyptian Arabic in the tool that I showed you earlier. So we can actually analyze Gulf Arabic uh, much better. Right now, we don't. We just use Egyptian on Gulf, and it doesn't always work well. SAMR is another project that is also funded by NYUAD. This is a collaboration with Professor Al-Khalil here. It's a work called Simplification of Arabic Masterpieces for Extensive Reading. This project is not on dialects, it's on standard Arabic. And the goal of it is to develop technologies that would allow us to figure out the right reading level for a text so that you can determine, is this, level of, is this text at the right level for child in sixth grade or ninth grade or an early adult, you can use this kind of technology also to determine is this text, are, are, is, are my students who are non-native speakers ready to read this text? It gives them a sense of the readability level. And there is very limited resources on this, uh, so we're trying to build a lot of resources and tools. And finally, I'll mention a project called Madar, which just started this year. Madar stands for Multi-Arabic Dialect Applications and Resources, and the word Madar means orbit. I love making acronyms. Probably like 20% of my job. No, I'm just kidding, it's not. <laughs> but uh, this is a work that's funded by the Qatar National Research Fund, and it's a collaboration with Carnegie Mellon, Qatar University, and Columbia University with NYUAD. And we're doing something really kind of novel here that nobody had done in the technological sense yet, and that is develop parallel data and lexicons for 25 dialects where we pick 25 cities across the Arab world. So we start from Babrat and we end up in Doha, and we pick 25 or well, 23 cities in between the two, and we create parallel resources for them. By the end of the project, in about two and a half years, we hope that we'll be able to have translation systems that will translate between dialects. So you can actually translate Egyptian to Gulf properly. The data that we're working on is uh, from a resource called Basic Traveling Expressions Corpus. So it's all about tourism which we think that would be the most meaningful first tool that you want to have. Philip Kennedy earlier mentioned Wardat, so this is uh, the, the workshop on Arabic dialect technology. Also, we're very thankful for the NYUAD Institute for funding this effort. What we did, because there is, as you saw, there's not a lot of work on Arabic dialects, and we pretty much know most of the people who are working on it. 
so I would say we probably got about 80% of all the major players. Some people couldn't come. There's about 30 people, leading researchers across the world who work on Arabic, some in linguistics, Arabic dialects, some in, uh, from a linguistic point of view, some from a, a more computational point of view. And we were actually in the second day of, of this three-day workshop where we're discussing different kind of decisions for how to standardize and map a roadway for going ahead so we can maximize the benefit of working together. And then finally, my, my lab was mentioned also, Camel Lab. Uh, this is a shameless advertising. We're hiring. If you're interested in this or you're a student who wants to work on natural language processing, contact me. We'll be happy to talk to you. But we're looking also for postdocs and research scientists uh, to work all kinds of things like translation and uh, some of these cool tools and toys that we are developing. So I'll summarize and just say a few words about future direction. So if you walk from here learning that, you know, Arabic is challenging for language technology, that's my success. Uh, that's, I'm very happy. There's problems, a bit more subtlety of the kind of problems that we face from orthographic ambiguity to morphological complexity, and then the degree of variety and how it kind of, kind of start thinking of the poor little machine and how it's going to handle all this complexity. That's kind of what I think about usually. And there's been a lot of work on Arabic and Arabic dialects, but there's a lot more to do because the current performance is really not acceptable. And I actually... I mean, I compare, German does quite well, but you should always compare to the best, right? I mean, you should always compare to be at the top of all of these different processes. This is kind of what I would aim for. Now, in our field, what we need, it's kind of more like, you know, if you have to spread the word about this area, we'd like to have more support, and that comes in more people, more researchers who are working on it, who are supported for working on it. Part of the education starts really early. I mean, I started my degree, I worked on linguistics and also computer science since I was, I knew that this is what I wanted to do since I was 19 years old. And I've been doing it for over 25 years now, and I just, I'm in love with it. And I would love to have more people who are interested in this and to help to support them, or try to support them. We need more resources, all this data, 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 good quality data, annotated data. And that also means that we need funding to support creating this data. It doesn't come very easily and not always very cheaply. And then, you know, uh, looking for funding, not necessarily just for academia, but also for collaborations between companies. Uh, lots of startups, I hope, will start picking some of these tools up and using them and building things. And, you know, startups, you know, some success are successes and some are failures, but we all learn. And part of creating this culture in the Arab world around technology, and this will be almost my last slide. So I'm hoping, you know, would love if kind of around Arabic, we start having a culture that comes to, that has an idea about Arabic and technology. We have a concept about English and technology. And, and you know what I mean in the next slide. But I would love to have something that, you know, where expectations that we have are high. You know, that, of course, the machine should speak to me in Arabic. Of course, Siri should speak to me in Arabic. Why not, right? I mean, you know, and the fact that Arabic is complex or standard Arabic is hard or there is this complexity of the variety, no, that doesn't matter, make the computer work for me, right? That should be really the attitude. And I, I don't think that's actually there, that kind of energy around it. But we want these tools to be high quality, seamless, integrated through all of the kind of apps that we use, supportive you know, of other things, for example, for people who have, I mean, there's a lot of areas where language technology can be incredibly necessary, helping people who are deaf, helping people who have vision problems. And personalizable. Instead of being ideological, everybody must listen to and speak in standard Arabic. It could be, let's make it work for everybody in whatever comfort level they have as they, as they need. So I'm going to finish with what I hope is a funny slide. This was actually one of those things that got me interested in language technology when I was 
that 18, 19 year old. I don't know. Do you know this? Remember this? This is Judgment 2, um, Judgment, what is it called? Judgment Day or Terminator 2, Judgment Day, right? So this is from 1991. Sasha was 19 or 18 years old then. And this movie came out and the hero is a robot, right? And this little kid, uh, John Connor in the movie, is the one who in the future becomes uh, the person who fights against the robots. So the robots want to kill him as a baby. It's complex. Anyway, in this particular scene, and the, tra- the, the, the script is in English, and I put the Arabic version. He says, the boy tells the robot, keep it under 65. I don't want to get in trouble with the cops. And he, the robot says, affirmative. He says, no, no, no. You got to listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative or some shit like that. You say, no problemo. If someone comes up to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. Right? He's basically telling him, speak slang. Speak my dialect, as I would say. Right? If you look at the Arabic version of the script, it's hilarious. I mean, it's, it's, it's very standard. And I love the part where they translate eat me as iltahimni, which means devour me. It just completely misses the point. Um, but, but this kind of made me think, well, this is really interesting. English speakers, in their culture, when it comes to how they perceive English and technology, they seem to have the attitude that, of course, it should work. What do you mean? If it doesn't work, I won't buy it. I'm not going to pay the $2.99 for your stupid app. It doesn't work, right? Arabs don't have this. We're so excited when we have an app that prints Arabic letters right. I mean, you know, come on. It's just, it's just like unacceptable. So for me, it just I'm hoping to kind of start the seed of ideas here. Expect better performance from machines, right? We really need it. And I, and I don't really know what the answer is. I know how you would translate this better or what to expect. And, and I kind of thought about it. I could think of anything really clever to say. But I would just say, you know, I'll leave you with this idea. How would you like to talk to a robot in Arabic if you're an Arabic speaker? Or if you're a learner, how can a robot help you improve your Arabic? Why not? Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take questions. I'm going to put in a plug for acknowledgement for, I did these slides, but so much stuff of the work that's done here is from people who I've worked with for many years, and I can't list them all and thank them for, you know, without them, this, this kind of amount of work would not have actually happened. So I'll leave this here, and I'll, I'm happy to take questions. So in the West, the translation of the German Bible, translation of the Bible helps standardize the German language, for instance. And the Quran is much older, of course, but I wonder what role it might play in standardizing uh, Arabic. Oh, a major role. I mean, it's uh, definitely, I mean, you're asking a question not about technology, just for the record. And I am uh, not a historical linguist. I'm not an Arabist. Uh, so I'll do my best. And if other people have other things to say, please do. Definitely. I mean, the Quran gave Arabic the status that it has, uh, basically. It's the language of a major religion. It's For some people's perception, it's a language of God, right? It's a holy language. And that actually gives the sense of why some people in the modern standard form of the Quranic Arabic, which is the form we use today, which keeps pretty much the same syntax, has different lexical choices that it makes, but it's pretty much the same basic syntax. Uh, people feel very, very passionate and protective about it. And, and if you notice, I don't, I'm not against the standard uh, Arabic, and I think it's just part of the system. But it, it's not, and I, I, my call to action is about supporting all of the different forms of Arabic. But, but yes, it, it is central in, in defining what Arabic is, absolutely. I studied Arabic about 30 years ago now at a very old British university where our teaching and learning was very, very different to what it is now. 
And unlike many other parts of my life, it was something I never managed to grasp or perfect to the level I wanted, which took me on a very different path in life. Um, how would you say that technology that you have now would help a learner, you know, learn sure. the language that I, I kind of missed out? I didn't, we didn't use a language lab until my third year at university. Yeah, so absolutely. You were really behind in that respect. Right. I mean, of today's technology, there is, uh, I mean... There are some things that you can use today that already exist. I mean, Google Translate, as much as I complained about it, you know, <laughs> this is on tape. Anyway, uh, it still is uh, for the purpose of learning the standard language and being able to take a text from the news and parse it and understand it is extremely helpful because we do quite well in that, in that dimension. There are lots of tools like the Buckwalter Morphological Analyzer, and which is a tool that's very commonly used in technological circles on Arabic, uh, has different interfaces where you can actually go put in a word and it will give you all the different analyses. Metamira, our tool, is publicly available. You can grab some text, plug it in, and that could help you in understanding the text. Just recognize that there'll be some errors in some cases, right? I'm thinking in the NYU Abu Dhabi, NYU AD hackathon that took place two years ago, one of the tools that was developed was called Dalila, and it was a dialectal Arabic learning assistant or something like this. And it's a tool where you go on a web page and you see a word you're trying to read Arabic, you see a word you don't know, you double click on it and comes pop out a little explanation of what this word means, how it's broken, you know, and then, and then that's where it stopped. We thought that this can then be taken to link you to, you know, more grammar or verb tables and other things. So that's what we currently have. There's a lot of work going on also in the area of pedagogy and technology in general, not just for Arabic. And it's a, it's an interesting area. I mean, there's, there's some people here I can connect you with if you're curious who actually know more about this than I do. But I think figuring out the right formula of how to actually get the machine to help you or teach you the language is still, I think, under research. There's a lot more work that needs to be done there. I already, I know that in English, and I believe this was done for Japanese speakers, there was a tool that helps by creating a chatbot. So it's a dialogue system where you talk to it in English and then it kind of recognizes certain patterns of mistakes that speakers in that language would make and would say, oh, oh, you mean this, you don't mean that, right? So this kind of feedback for very common patterns, you can imagine having a machine designed to be able to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, some of the points you touch on there re uh, regarding the translation or the words, um, I think one of my main weaknesses was pronunciation. Yeah. So would those tools be able to assist uh, in None of the tools that I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, would be able to do this. Uh, and I, I, I'm not, I don't really know. I think if Violetta probably, she's right there. Do you, can you answer this question, actually? These people from the conference over that, they probably better at me at answering this question. Well, I think I'm probably a little biased. There are tools that help you correct your pronunciation. There's some really good work, for example, that has been done not for Arabic, but at Carnegie Mellon University, focusing on pronunciation of vowels, short vowels, long vowels. It's, this, this is a problem for people who learn English. A lot of the over-the-counter types of tools for learning language will listen to your speech and show your speech profile, and then you get like what it should have looked like. The problem with those tools is that you see that there is a difference, but you have no idea of how to correct it to make it look more like uh, what it should look like. So it's basically kind of a trial and error process, and, and that's not necessarily always so beneficial. So I think that technology is still in the, in the process of, of being developed. 
but um, maybe some of the speech people who are here, if there are any people, <laughs> can actually oh, we, correct me. We can me. take more questions also to... I was just going to add a response. Is Ahmed here? Ahmed <laughs> Ali? Uh, Ahmed Ali there is uh, one of the experts in the speech recognition. And we had a session this morning to talk about specifically uh, this topic of being able to pronounce Arabic. I should let Ahmed actually say this. But there are several tools actually out there, technologies. I was going to use the same terminology that Nizar is mentioning. There are several tools that we can use to actually have the machine learn how to pronounce, and it will take a few months, that's what Ahmed claims, <laughs> to build something like this. And it should help people learn how to pronounce. So we'll see. The other comment I was just going to say, you mentioned earlier about Facebook at the beginning. Uh-huh. They actually did an experiment two years ago, and they actually went after 689,000 users, and they tried to manipulate people's emotions by posting things that would make people happy or sad. And then they, it was secretive at the time, and then people found out and they were apologizing. But they ran this experiment actually to control our emotions. <laughs> and now they added emojis. I'm sure all of you know what emojis are. Again, this is part of the, the text. That's another variation on dialects. And they're using that to track our emotions. So anytime you use emojis on Facebook, your emotion is being tracked. <laughs> Thank you, Dizar. It's wonderful. And it's a, a great survey and, and actually to a level of detail that's uh, you know very appropriate and, and good. My question is, if, if you look at it worldwide, uh, this is multi-billion, and if I, not just multi-billion, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. This is what makes Google ultimately what it is. And, you know, all these companies are great because this is, this is what they trade in ultimately. This is, this is, the, this is the, what, what they need to. So this is the state of the art as we know it as far as Arabic. But we also know that there are many, many, many defense ministries that are huge budgets being involved in this. And I'm, I don't know if you can answer this, but to what extent do they have technologies that we don't really know that they're using? Because I know, like, you know, all these security systems, Mukhabarat or the, the NSA, all of this, they have, they, have, they have the money and they have the budgets and they have, you know, they, and this is the way for them to use. And, and we suspect that they have technologies. But I want to know to what extent is, is that something that they've kind of, you know, achieved certain uh, advances in technology that obviously they don't share. And we know even even companies like Microsoft, Google, they don't share. But what do you have to say on that? Well, I, I, I don't have any level of clearance. And if I did, I would not be telling you. Uh, <laughs> so that's my short answer. The, the work that was funded in the United States for about almost 10 years, I mean, it was post 9-11, obviously, There was a lot of interest in developing technologies to understand Arabic, to do translation. There was actually a huge project on translating Iraqi Arabic to English and back. It was actually the first language to go in bi-directional translation, and the intention was to develop tools for soldiers in Iraq. Right? I only know about the stuff that's public. I, I really have no access or knowledge of any of that stuff. And the way the system of funding happens in the United States for universities to participate in such projects, universities in the United States require that all the work that they do is made public, in fact. So Medemira was actually funded by U.S. government. And now anybody can download it and use it anywhere. And it actually, you can just download the package and start using it. A lot of people are using it in the Arab world. So 
I know only about the public competitions, for example, also. So there's like a, something called Open Machine Translation Evaluation, there's a series of them. And if you check out their websites, they will tell you, you know, it's a big competition. Usually the government runs its own private competition, which has the best people working on this. Uh, I can guarantee you that the researchers in the companies that are like IBM and BBN that had worked on it are, are the best people who do this work. I don't believe I mean, it would be really surprising if there's a secret other research community that is somehow nobody knows about. I would find that very, very surprising because why would they be funding these other people to do this work, right? So it's it's really DARPA at least, and I, I don't want to be like advertising for DARPA, right? But DARPA did fund a lot of my research and they're focused on the research, uh, you know, and making all of these things public. A lot of the resources also that were developed, the databases and Corpora are made available publicly through places like the Linguistic Data Consortium, which I would use a moment, you know, for people in universities working on language technology, being a member in the in the Linguistic Data Consortium, uh, you know, it costs like about $2,500 a year and you get everything for that year, right? So it's made available to other people to encourage more research. The parallel in the Arab world is not it's not really similar. I mean, the best that I can imagine the Arab world are places like Qatar Foundation, for example, which has been generously funding a lot of work um, in general, but also a, a good number of, of projects on uh, on Arabic. And within them, actually, the data we make public. So Qalb Corpus, you know, we're making public. Kind of diverged from your question. That was kind of clever. Okay. So I'd like to ask you to join me in, in thanking Nizar for quite inspiring lecture. <laughs> You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. <laughs>